Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and across the universe. Today, power to the people. Right on. Yeah, partner Jeff Peterson joins us to talk about the ACCC's groundbreaking decision on the Origin Energy Sale and the race to connect renewable power generation to the communities who need it. So it's interesting that we are now seeing decisions where there is a degree of competition concern, but the ACCC is prepared to clear a transaction on the basis of public benefits. And as I say, I feel that reflects a degree of pragmatism in this ACCC. It also reflects, I think, a greater willingness to, and perhaps a greater need to understand and take into account environmental considerations and environmental public benefits in decision-making. Have they thought about a really long extension cord? Well, they basically have, but it'll need to be a bit thicker than your ordinary extension cord. And it seems that not everyone wants them running over their land. Yeah, I'm always tripping over those things. John Lennon famously sang Power to the People with the Plastic Ono Band. And now the Beatles are back with a new song, Matt, which everyone is saying is thanks to AI. That's right. John recorded a demo tape of Now and Then back in 1977, and the audio quality wasn't that great. But they've used AI now to separate John's voice and piano into their own tracks and then mix them together with later tracks from the surviving Beatles, which they recorded back in the 90s and also this year. And there's a film dimension to this, of course, because Sir Peter Jackson used that AI for his Beatles documentary of 2021, so they sent him the tape. Yeah, and it sounds great and has a really fun video showing all the Beatles as they were through the ages. And we'll link to that in the show notes if you haven't already seen it. There's also a football dimension, Moya, because the Beatles were from Liverpool. Well, yes, and they'll never walk alone. Um, Is this my chance to try out the Liverpool accent I learnt off the Scouser who crashed at ours during the World Cup? Go ahead then. Basta! All right, can you tell us what's been up and about the ground? Maybe you could start with Anfield? I'm not sure what you just said. But the next stage in our competition policy journey is underway, with the appointment of the full competition task force advisory panel, which is going to report to the government on competition policy issues over the next couple of years. So we knew that former ACCC chair Rod Sims was on the panel, along with Danielle Wood, who was at the Grattan Institute, but has now been nominated as chair of the Productivity Commission. Yeah, and she will still be on the panel, along with five new members. The panel chair will be Dr Kerry Schott, who's had a lot of experience in energy and infrastructure, both in New South Wales and at a Commonwealth level. She also has an Order of Australia, Moya, so you may have run into her at the AO Club. Um, I don't think you should call it that. Sounds like a club for adults only. No, you're right. Um, Also on the panel is Sharon Henrik, who led the competition group at another law firm, and David Gonski, who's held more chairs than the Sydney Theatre Company, which he also chairs, Mm. and also led Julia Gillard's inquiry into school funding, the Gonski Review. That was quite a progressive review, I think, but its recommendations haven't been implemented. At least they didn't go the full Gonski, did they? No, they didn't give a Gonski in the end. Finally, we have a couple of recruits from overseas. Professor John Asker from UCLA, who specialises in competition policy and cartel conduct, and John Fingleton from the Irish Competition Authority and the UK Office of Fair Trading, which of course are now the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission and the Competition and Markets Authority, respectively. He's also been interested in Australian competition policy for a while, hasn't he? He was involved in the debate around the time of the Harper Review, and he gave a Baxt lecture in 2014. That's right. So it's looking like a good panel. Um, We know that one of the first things they'll advise on is the changes to merger law and process that the ACCC has proposed. And Sharon Henricks has quite recently argued that we don't need any changes there. So there should be some pretty robust debates in the panel. Mm. And it feels like the ACCC is turning up the volume on the need for those merger changes lately. Yeah, one good example of that is in pet stock, you know, the specialty pet retailer that Woolworths is buying a stake in. Oh, uh, yeah, that's where I get all my specialty pets. Oh, me too. 
But during market inquiries, the ACCC found that Petstock had bought some other pet suppliers over the last few years without notifying them. And it's now opened an enforcement investigation into those old deals. And I see that Petstock has offered an undertaking to divest some of those acquisitions. It has. But because those kind of went under the radar, the ACCC is now saying that the decision taking here to proceed with acquisitions of this scale without seeking ACCC clearance demonstrates the limitations of the current informal merger regime in Australia. So would those acquisitions have triggered the proposed mandatory notification regime? It kind of depends on where the notification thresholds end up. The ACCC has suggested the monetary thresholds should be $400 million in turnover or $35 million in transaction value. And Petstock's turnover would meet that test now, reportedly, but might not have when it bought some of the other pet shops. And some of the acquisitions were of very local pet stores, which may not have met the transaction value threshold either, though some were more substantial chains that probably would have. The ACCC have also talked about more qualitative tests that might apply, haven't they? They have, but so far the submissions that we've seen only talk about those quantitative thresholds, and those are a lot easier to apply. There are other parts of the proposal that could help the ACCC here, like the new merger factors that are aimed at creeping acquisitions, and also the power to call in transactions even where they don't meet the thresholds. Yeah, but that would rely on the ACCC finding out, of course. That's right, it would. The ACCC chair also recently told the Financial Review that the big changes to the economy around decarbonisation and digitisation make it even more critical that the ACCC has the power to review all these mergers in the future. So we'll come back to this later, but the ACCC did just authorise the acquisition of Origin Energy on environmental grounds, all under the process we have at the moment. Yeah, well, that maybe could have come with a spoiler alert, Moya. Oops. But you're exactly right. And actually, the process the ACCC is proposing at the moment could be a bit less responsive to those public benefits than what we have now. And that's because under the new proposal, public benefits would only be considered in a second stage after the ACCC's decided there's a competition problem. That's right. And that's been justified on the basis that almost all merger authorisations so far have been settled on the competition issue. But we've just had these two authorisations that were cleared on the public benefits. And you would expect those kind of public benefits would be even more important as these changes accelerate. You would. We've got to get to net zero. Anyway, we'll see what the task force makes of all this. Well, following on from last time, and the great interview you did with partner Louise Klamke, Qantas has filed its defence in the ACCC case, which alleges that Qantas sold tickets on flights that had already been cancelled, and the defence has raised a few eyebrows. What, so the flights weren't cancelled? The flights were cancelled, but Qantas is saying it didn't sell tickets for those flights. In fact, it never sold tickets for any particular flights. It only sold a bundle of rights to travel on the scheduled flight or on alternative options. And it only had to use its reasonable endeavours to get customers where they wanted to be in time. Wait a minute, is this another Seinfeld bit? You know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to keep the reservation? Yeah, or the World Cup where the tickets were first come, first served, but the seats weren't. Oh, ouch, too soon. I'm sorry. The thing is, they're probably right if you look at the terms and conditions and what it is exactly that you're buying. But ACCC Chair Gina Cascott-Leap has said, that's not the problem. It's the way you're representing the service to customers and what most people are going to expect. I know that Delta in the US has a subsidiary called Endeavour Air. Maybe that's the way to go. It worked for Captain Cook. Yeah, reasonable Endeavour Air. It's like that great Beatles song, she's got a bundle of rights and she don't care. John Lennon again. Or Gladys Knight, you know, he's leaving. Even. On that midnight train to Georgia. Well, maybe not that train and give or take an hour. <laughs> Qantas has also said that it didn't want to tell passengers about the cancelled flights until it had a replacement flight for them. And that can take some time. Yeah, and it is now taking cancelled flights down right away. So we'll see how far Qantas and the ACCC want to push this and what happens if it goes to judgment, especially with the penalty issue. We will. 
But Matt, you recently sat down with partner Jeff Peterson to talk about that authorization of the origin acquisition, spoiler alert, Thank you. and what's getting in the way of the energy transition. That's right. Jeff had a lot to say about the decision and how it fits in with the new national energy objectives and our decarbonised energy future. Let's take a listen. I'm here today with Jeff Peterson, who's a partner in the Competition and Regulation Group and has been doing lots of work in the energy sector. Jeff, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. So it's been a busy time in energy, and we've been talking a lot about the tensions that can arise between environmental and climate change goals and the concerns of competition law and market regulation. How's that being dealt with in energy? So there's been a bit going on, Matt. One thing is that we've seen some changes to our national energy objectives to expressly provide for emissions reductions objectives to be taken into account in decision making. So to date, the energy objectives have been very much framed around maintaining reliability, security, supply of, of energy services, and of course, providing those services at a reasonable price. And, and that reflected uh, the time that those objectives came into the law and, and the focus of energy policy at that time. But the recent changes to those objectives have brought in an emissions re- reductions limb so that when making decisions under that law, the AER, or for that matter, the AMC or AEMO, must have regard to the achievement of emissions reductions objectives. To some extent, those objectives have been taken into account in some decisions to date, particularly when AEMO does its planning. But the changes to the objectives, I think, are significant in that they expressly require that to be taken into account. And there will now be some changes to the the rules to harmonise the rules with those new objectives. And do we have any idea how these new objectives will be implemented in practice? What we have at the moment, Matt, is is some guidance from the AR on how it will operationalise or apply the amended national energy objectives in its decision-making. What the AR has indicated is that it will likely apply a form of cost-benefit analysis to its decision-making. So when it's considering, for example, an expenditure project which might have some benefit in reducing emissions or achieving emissions reductions targets, it will take that into account and and it will try to look at the value of the the reduction in emissions and of course weigh that up against the cost of the projects and also its impact on those other parameters of the objectives like reliability and security of supply. So it it will be looking to put a a dollar value on emissions reduction and, and when it's considering expenditure projects or other initiatives which might have an emissions reduction benefit, it'll look to put a value on that and weigh it up against the other considerations. So it's going to be hard to achieve all of these objectives without some collaboration or coordination between market participants. How are the regulators and the competition enforcement agencies dealing with that? So what we're seeing is more of a balancing and a consideration of potentially competing considerations in decision making. And the ACCC in particular has had to grapple with potentially conflicting policy objectives of, say, ensuring competition is protected while also ensuring that there is scope to achieve emissions reduction objectives. So there has been an application for authorization recently for collaboration between market participants, and that's in relation to scheduling of certain system works, particularly works required by generator, for example, maintenance of their systems. And AEMO has asked for authorization for some collaboration to facilitate that. And in considering that application, the ACCC has had to balance the potential impact on competition with the potential public benefits associated with greater collaboration to support the achievement of those emissions reduction objectives. 
And I know that in the past they've authorized that kind of conduct, but this time they've got a draft determination that would propose not to authorize this time. What's the difference now? Look, I think fundamentally the, the issue the AGC faced with this one is they couldn't see the clear public benefit associated with this conduct. They felt that there was sufficient scope for AEMO to manage these scheduling issues w- without the conduct that was proposed to be authorised. So this was a case where the AGC was concerned about the competition impact of the collaboration but couldn't see the offsetting public benefit. And I guess previously the authorisations were kind of in the context of uh, covid and then the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, and this seems to be more of a, a long-term view, and this is more back to business as usual for the analysis. Yeah, that's right. The, the previous authorizations were for relatively time-limited conduct in a very unique market circumstance, whereas here, AMO is seeking authorization for a, a much longer-term s- scope of, of collaboration. I guess one way to avoid these issues of coordination is by going for merger instead. And we've just had a major acquisition cleared in the Australian energy system. What can you tell us about Brookfield and Origin? So Brookfield Origin is another case where the ACCC has had to weigh up the public benefits, in this case of an acquisition, with the potential competition impacts. And in this case, the ACCC has found that there are real public benefits associated with this transaction, which outweigh some competition concerns that it had. And the public benefits here are really associated with the integration of of generation and retail and Brookfield essentially having access to the Origin Retail Book to support its planned investment in renewables. And Brookfield is saying to the ACCC that if it does have access to the Origin Retail Book as, in effect, a guaranteed off-taker, then that will support investment of around 14 gigawatts of renewable capacity over the next decade or so, which is a huge amount of capacity that it's planning to put into the system. And the ACCC has accepted that that is a real public benefit that would likely arise from this transaction, and, and more importantly, one that wouldn't arise in the world without the transaction. Against that, the ACCC did have to consider the, the potential competition impacts of vertical integration, and in this case, integration of generation with the transmission network that's part owned by uh, Brookfield, the Osnet Transmission Network in Victoria. And that vertical integration between generation and transmission has been a concern of the ACCC for a very long time. Uh, and it's something that has historically not happened, not since the 1990s when the supply chain was broken up. But in this case, the ACCC is prepared to accept a level of integration because there are these offsetting public benefits, but also because Brookfield has been prepared to give undertakings which partially address some of those competition concerns. How do those undertakings work? So there's a few elements to the undertakings, but really the key element, which I think addressed some of the AGC's concerns, uh, was much tighter ring fencing controls than would ordinarily be imposed on transmission businesses. So of course, transmission network businesses and also distribution businesses are subject to ring fencing guidelines issued by the AER, which are among other things, intended to prevent the the competition downsides, I suppose, from vertical integration, including the potential for discrimination between uh, users of of the network infrastructure. But in this case, Brookfield has offered uh, undertakings which go well beyond the usual ring fencing controls and include very specific commitments, for example, around access to IT systems and certain staff who may and may not be involved in the activities of the Origin business and and the Osnet business. So those undertakings weren't enough by themselves to allay the ACCC's concerns that there might be a lessening competition, and that's why they had to rely on the public benefits. 
What did Brookfield have to do to demonstrate those public benefits? So I think Brookfield was able to convince the ACCC that the integration of the Brookfield investment capacity and the Origin Retail Book was going to facilitate the level of investment that Brookfield says they intend to make, the sort of 14 gigawatts of capacity that I referred to. And the ACCC was also prepared to accept that without the transaction, that level of investment was unlikely to occur in the short to medium term. So here the ACCC is looking at a a time horizon of sort of 10 years or thereabouts. The ACCC wasn't entirely convinced that the investment was not going to occur over the long, long term, but at least over the the 10-year time horizon, they were accepting that the level of investment would be higher with the transaction compared to a world without. In other words, this transaction would allow for an acceleration of investment in renewable capacity compared to the counterfactual. So all the benefits that the ACCC accepted as public benefits were these environmental benefits. Were there any other benefits that were argued but weren't accepted and what could we learn from that? Uh, There were a few other public benefits that were claimed by the applicants here. Some of those were, for example, impacts on energy prices. The ACCC wasn't prepared to accept that that they would necessarily arise from the transaction, although I think it's fair to say that they weren't the main focus of the application and and the, the main game here was those environmental benefits associated with acceleration of the renewables investment and, and achievement of emissions reduction targets. This isn't the first time that Brookfield has tried to make an investment in the Australian energy sector, is it? That's right. So there was, uh, a year or two ago, the potential for an acquisition of AGL, which of course didn't go ahead. Interestingly, at that time, we had a different ACCC. We had a different ACCC chair. And there was a sense at that time, at least, that that transaction wouldn't get through the ACCC because of those historical concerns around vertical integration, long-held, strongly-held views on vertical integration in the electricity sector. Interestingly, this ACCC has been prepared to accept that its competition concerns will be outweighed by the public benefits. We'll never know whether the same decision would have been made under the old commission, but it's it's certainly a, a different looking ACCC and I think fair to say a, a more pragmatic decision here, uh, a preparedness to balance public benefits against competition concerns. Do you think that the new ACCC is more willing to look at environmental benefits as pure public benefits rather than having to sort of argue for economic benefits in the way that the old ACCC might have? Well, certainly we're seeing a greater preparedness to accept public benefits outweighing competition concerns. So this is the second decision now where that has occurred, the first being the Armed Prosecutor decision, of course. So it's interesting that, that we are now seeing decisions where there is a degree of competition concern, but the ACCC is prepared to clear a transaction on the basis of public benefits. And as I say, I feel that reflects a degree of pragmatism in this ACCC. But you're right, Matt, it also reflects, I think, a, a greater willingness to, and perhaps a greater need to understand and take into account environmental considerations and environmental public benefits in decision-making. So it's really interesting to see the ACCC grapple with these big questions um, of the energy transition in this way. Is there anything in their decision that sort of might have broader implications across the energy sector, any issues they've touched on? Well, I think the most important implication for all participants in the energy market is there does need to be, and there will be in decision-making, more of this balancing of traditional objectives around cost and reliability, balancing those with 
emissions reduction objectives. And what that may mean is, is that in some cases there's a bit more flexibility for businesses to undertake investments that might have otherwise raised, for example, competition concerns if it can be demonstrated that there is a countervailing public benefit associated with that. So, for example, network businesses that have traditionally been confined to network operations and and network-related activities may have a little more scope to expand beyond those traditional activities if they can demonstrate that there is a public benefit associated with them doing that, which outweighs any competition concern. So I saw in the decision that the ACCC reports that in renewable capacity, there's been 209 gigawatts publicly announced, but there's only been 7.9 gigawatts that have been committed so far, which seems like there's quite a, a way to go. And obviously the acquisition here is meant to accelerate that transition. Is anything else going on in the sector that, that would push that along? Well, I, I think a, a lot of people are saying that a key constraint is building out the transmission capacity to connect all of the generation capacity that's needed. And that is really a function of how our transmission system and our electricity system has been built traditionally. It's been built around generation in particular parts of the system, for example, in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales, or in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria where a lot of coal-fired generation has been traditionally. So that's where the transmission links have been built to and the transmission capacity has been. But of course, much of the new generation capacity needs to be built in areas which are particularly sunny or particularly windy, which may or may not be where that capacity is today. So there's, there's a huge task to augment transmission networks to meet the need for generation capacity. And that is both a, a funding task, but it's also a task in obtaining what's known as social license for building out huge amounts of transmission infrastructure to those areas where it's required. I think the network operators have been offering landholders a certain amount of money to run wires across their properties, but not everyone's going for it by the sound of things. Yeah, that's right. And it varies from community to community, uh, what's required to obtain that social license. But it is a huge challenge that's being faced by the transmission businesses and it's one that you know rulemakers and policymakers are also grappling with, putting in place the frameworks and the mechanisms to ensure that social license can be obtained. And for example, transmission businesses can recover the cost of those augmentations where they run into community opposition, for example. Yeah, and does this then have an impact on the existing power stations? Some of those are due to be retired within the near term. Is that going to be affected by these problems? Well, yes, the retirement of those coal-fired generators is to some extent interrelated with the speed at which new generation capacity can come online. There are ongoing debates around what that timing should be for particular generators, but ultimately it will depend on how quickly the renewable generation can be put in place to replace the capacity that will be withdrawn when those coal-fired generators shut down. And Origin's got one of those that's due to be shut down pretty quickly. Yeah, so Raring is one which receives a bit of attention in that ACCC decision. There were questions about whether the Brookfield transaction would affect the timing of Raring being closed. Ultimately, the ACCC didn't find that it would be affected. And as I say, I think ultimately that will be a function of broader market dynamics and the speed at which renewable generation can come to market. That's been another busy period in the sector with a lot more to come. Jeff, thanks for laying that out and we look forward to seeing you again. What a great interview. And of course, right after we recorded that, Brookfield increased its offer for Origin by another $1.2 billion. It did. The largest shareholder has already said no and has increased its stake. 
But that's the best and final offer, so that's what'll go to the shareholder vote at the end of November. Can you see anything in your crystal ball about that? The crystal ball says, ask again later. But it's also saying that Minister for Industry and Science Ed Husick has been signing us up to some interesting agreements at the AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park in the UK. Mm, That's the country pile where those teams of code breakers cracked the German Enigma and the Lorenz codes in World War II with the help of some very early computing technology. That's the one. Uh, Many of the code breakers, of course, were recruited through a cryptic crossword published in The Telegraph, as dramatised in the 2014 biopic of Alan Turing, The Imitation Game. So who are we trying to recruit with our competition law cryptic crossword? I'm just hoping someone's going to tell Justice Whitney about it, because the whole thing is a very niche bit about his throwaway line three years ago now. Oh, Justice Whitney, if you're listening, can someone please put Matt out of our misery? Please. The imitation game was the original name for the Turing test, which is a test for whether artificial intelligence has been achieved. And it's also a good name for the current wave of AI, which is kind of supercharged imitation. And so it's a good place for an AI summit and signing agreements about AI. It's perfect. The Bletchley Declaration recognises the potential benefits and the potential harms of AI, and it promises international cooperation to identify and understand the risks and develop appropriate policies together. And they're due to meet again next year. And our partner Simon Burns is in the papers saying that the Declaration gives Australia a seat at the table, but we need to get the balance right between imposing too much regulation and empowering people to use the tech correctly and understand the risks. Yeah, it makes sense. Right before the summit, uh, Joe Biden signed his own executive order on requiring new standards for AI safety and security, which has a lot more detail than the Bletchley Declaration, but it's broadly in line with its aims and also those of the European AI Act. Mm, I heard the president became concerned when he saw AI-generated voice and video of himself and then watched a Tom Cruise movie. That's right. That movie was Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, of course, where the villain is a rogue AI called The Entity. Of course, he could have chosen to be freaked out by any number of films, from Megan to The Matrix to Ex Machina, and of course, all the Terminator films. Luckily, Minister Husick has reassured us that the Terminator scenario doesn't look like panning out, and that Skynet isn't just around the corner. Yeah, and I feel like Ed Husick's actually seen that movie. Um, He says his favourite film is Inception, so it's all pretty consistent. And while he was at Bletchley Park, he also signed on to a quantum computing accord with the UK. Oh, is this another emerging technology that can be amazingly powerful but might end up destroying the world? Certainly the world as we know it. Uh, Quantum computers are meant to be at least 100 million times faster than regular computers, which would be great for folding proteins or playing EA Sports FC 24, but could also defeat all existing forms of data encryption, which would be a problem. Even the Enigma and Lorenz codes? Even our cryptic crossword. Gosh, so what does the crystal ball say? Is the world destined for fiery destruction or utopian bliss? It's not saying. It's just saying that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2 is really going to be something. Ah, Well, you heard it here first. Remember, you can find relevant links in our show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including partner Liana Witt on individual penalties for contraventions of the competition consumer law and special counsel Richard Lestrange on undertakings. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.